0: Okay, everybody, if you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. I always hate to break off the talking because it's, it's beautiful. But um, we're going to start in on this, our first Sunday in the season of Lent, which I'm excited about. Um, In the early 1970s, this Japanese artist um, named um, Hisachiki Takahashi, I don't pronounce Japanese names very well, that's the best I can do, he asked um, 22 colleagues to draw a map of the United States from memory. He gave them all this really nice piece of handmade paper, gave it to folks like Jasper Johns and Bryce Martin and a bunch of other famous artists, and they were to draw a U.S. map by memory and then hand it back to him for this this book. some of them um, took it literally, like this is Mel, Mel Bachner's, um, which is actually, I don't know if you can see that, it's actually pretty close, impressive, like, I, I don't know, I was like, that's, that's pretty dang good. Um, and then there was Gordon Matta-Clark, who drew um, just the major cities, where, it's mostly where the good art galleries are, New York, LA, that's why, that's why <laughs> Kansas City made the list. Dorothea Rockburn drew her map like this, from the side view, showing its depth or lack of depth. And an artist named James Rosenquist Rosenquist drew America as a great big check, like revealing the true nature. Like that is the map of America right now. It's about the cash. And this guy named Joseph um, Kosuth, his is perfect for an artist. (laughs) New York and LA, baby, that's all that matters to like half of the people in this country. Have you ever tried to do this? Have you ever tried to draw a map of the United States um, for memory, just and try to draw all the states. I tried it late, not late last night, and this is all that I could come up with. It's embarrassing, right? <laughs> I was trying to focus on the roads, but I just didn't have a lot of time. This is the best I could do. I'm actually, I'm, I've always been a, a fan of, of maps, especially old maps. Poor Kristen, they're like all over our house. I, I try to collect them. Um, and I love them because they give us a glimpse of how people saw the world at a particular point in history. Sometimes they're way off, sometimes they're surprisingly accurate. But there was this practice when um, cartographers drew their maps and came to a part of the terrain that was relatively unexplored, they would label those regions terra incognita. That's a word they use, it's it's Latin for land, terra incognita, uh, unknown. We know there's something else out there. We just don't really know how much of it or what it's like. And so they would kind of make an educated guess that they would draw it and label it terra incognita. And there was this, um, always a sense of danger that came along with terra incognita. In fact, in very old Roman maps, they would sometimes write the word hic. Sunt Draconis, which in Old English means here be dragons, which is obviously sounds better in a pirate voice, right? Here be dragons, right? (laughs) It was just this warning that terra incognita is dangerous. This place is full of wild beasts and there's no map and if you go out there, you will be functionally lost. And no one's coming to get you if you get into trouble. You have to find your way out if you want to survive. I think that this is kind of an interesting metaphor for the human experience and those seasons in life when we feel like we're sort of in uncharted territory, terra incognita. And there's, there's like no way out of where we are. You can't just avoid it. You're going to have to somehow get through it. And our story for today um, is one in which Jesus finds himself in terra incognita, only the biblical word for this is wilderness. Luke chapter 4 tells us Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, fasting from food and then enduring, it says, a, a testing. Some people call it attempting. The, the word means test, it's testing. In the age of the great explorers, Anytime that they ventured into terra incognita, they knew that they were agreeing to become functionally lost. That was just part of what it meant to be an explorer. You go beyond the boundaries of the known world. You you get lost. That's what they would do. And they would do this so that they could expand our understanding of the world in which we live. And sort of the, the analogy I'm trying to make is that anyone who wants to grow as a person has to agree to sort of explore the edges, the boundaries of the soul. And they, in order to do this, they have to agree to get a little bit lost from time to time, to venture into terra incognita, to go beyond the limits of what we now know. We have to spend some time in the wilderness. And life sort of pushes us toward this, right? I mean, it, it could be the result of some kind of pain, physical pain, emotional pain. Loss, uncertainty, risk, change, things happen to us and suddenly we realize like there's no map for where we find ourselves right now. And at that moment, I think we have this choice. Are we going to find the quickest, easiest way out of the wilderness, Uh, like a, a shortcut, you know, a rescue mission, or will we explore the wilderness of the soul a little bit? Do we want a quick fix and an escape, or are we going to try to be brave and, and keep the, the word we use often here is just keep faithing it, even on, on this land that we call wilderness, right, and see what it might have to teach us about our lives. We have to be willing to, to feel a little bit lost. Um, neuroscientists have actually studied what's going on in the human brain when people get lost. It's fascinating. There's There's a part of the brain called the hippocampus which specializes in making mental maps. Anytime you walk into a brand new environment, it begins to map that environment for you. And if you return to that space, in fact, the more times you return to the space, the better your mental map becomes. But they also tell us that in times of high stress, the hippocampus stops firing. And this other part of the brain called the amygdala comes online and the amygdala regulates among other things the release of adrenaline which just gets our bodies flowing with with this i don't know energy and this this intense need to move or act and to do something and this means that in times of acute stress when we we, we really need to be able to know where we are we simultaneously lose the ability to map our surroundings, and our body is just flooded with all this adrenaline that says you got to do something. You need to move. You need to make something happen. Which is why, by the way, hunters are lost more than any other people in the world, right? Because they go off trail chasing games. They're all flooded with adrenaline. Their mind is not mapping like normal. And when they finally stop and realize they don't know where they are, there's so much adrenaline pumping through their bodies that they can't help themselves. They, they try to sort of walk themselves out of trouble, and before you know it, they're completely lost. In her book, I don't know if you guys are Rebecca Solnit fans, I'm a huge fan of this writer. Um, she has a book called A Field Guide to Getting Lost that I think I've read three or four times. This tells you how bad I get lost in my own life. Um, but she tells a story about a friend of hers who's part of the Rocky Mountain Search and Rescue team. And the friend told Solnit this story about a lost 11-year-old boy. The story's special because um, the boy was deaf and losing his eyesight. Um, It it was a special camp for for kids who had these kind of challenges, so they could still go camping, go spend a night out in the woods. And during a late afternoon game of hide-and-seek, he hid a little bit too well because nobody found him, and he never made his way back to camp. And um, when he wasn't back by sundown, they called Search and Rescue and they hunted all night couldn't find the kid. It was tough because he was deaf and so he couldn't hear them calling for him. But when he when he thought that he might be lost, he did everything right. He stayed put, he didn't wander, and he used this whistle that they had given him to call his counselors, but because he couldn't hear, he didn't realize he was like just over the rise from a river, a stream that was, made, you know, those things make so much noise. So he was blowing and blowing on his whistle, they couldn't they couldn't hear it. And so when he realized, okay, I'm in trouble, he curled up between two fallen trees, covered himself in a bunch of leaves, and and just went to sleep. And when the sun came up in the morning, he went to the top of a hill and began blowing his whistle again. And they found him right away. It was actually Solnit's friend who, who found him. He was cold, but he was fine. The search and rescue people actually say that when you're lost, the key to survival is knowing you are lost, which seems obvious, but... It is not obvious. That's also why kids are found more often than adults, because they can admit that they are lost, right? (laughs) They don't stray so far, they wait. Adults try to rescue themselves and usually make things worse because they can't admit that they are lost. And actually says there's kind of a formula for how to get lost. When you go exploring, you you have to kind of pay attention to things like the weather, the, the landmarks, The way that the journey out will look very different than the journey back. You have to be able to read things like the moon and the sun and the stars and the wind and the weather, the clouds, the way the land slopes in the direction of running water, and just like a thousand little things like that that are only known by those who are literate in the language of the wilderness. But the lost are generally illiterate in this language. So they panic and they get themselves in in trouble. Someone actually has this killer definition of what it means to be lost. she says that to be lost means the world has suddenly gotten larger than your knowledge of it. I think that's pretty good. I like that that's that's Terra incognita. the world is just suddenly larger than it was a minute ago than your knowledge of it anybody i mean does that sound does that ring true? anybody been there Terra incognita like Emotional, spiritual, mental maps don't match the world you're facing at this time. Maybe there right now, I mean, besides me. Um, and this, this is what I think. I think we live in a world where we can almost always know where we are um, physically. I mean, we got GPS in our phones. We know where we are and other, where other people are down to the foot. But in a spiritual sense, we are functionally lost as a culture and in many ways as a world. And so I think it's maybe not so surprising that most of us are really struggling to navigate our world. And the middle maps that we were given by you know, parents and teachers and churches, they don't, they don't work right now. They don't seem to correspond. To the terrain we see around us. And part of the problem with this is we don't really have a lot of experience with being lost, you know? We're kind of used to knowing where we are. We don't really know what to do when we find ourselves in the wilderness. And we just, we know that we don't trust the maps that we have that were given by, you know, institutions, corporations, governments, media, even the church. But we also don't know how to just navigate by the night sky or our wits. Most of us have never been good and lost before, and so we don't really know what to do when we find ourselves on Terra incognita, spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally. We don't have the tools to survive in the wilderness of the soul. And so we kind of become slaves to our limbic system. you know It's fight, flight or freeze. That's all we know how to do, because we've never really been lost. It hasn't always been this way. A couple hundred years ago, being off course by a, a day or two, this is no big deal. This is a really common experience. Spending a few nights, even weeks, sort of not knowing where you were it was was a regular thing, not an uncommon thing. I've told you this quote before because I love it. It's from Daniel Boone. He once said, I was never lost in the woods my whole life, though once I was confused for three days. (laughs) And and for him, it's a legitimate distinction, right? He knew he'd he'd eventually get his bearings, and in the meantime, he knew what to do. That's not really lost. That's exploring. Solnit talks about um, the Lewis and Clark expedition in Sacagawea. that you know, her role in that famous campaign was not really to be the guide, like we were told in history class. These were all guides; they were all trappers and explorers. But um, for Sacagawea, the, the wilderness was her home. Forest was home, and, and she was so comfortable there. She made everyone else comfortable. She knew the plants that they could eat. She knew a lot of the native languages when they ran into people. And she had an infant with her, so they all knew this wasn't a war party. Um, They all had competencies right, to navigate the wilderness, but Sacagawea felt at home there. And she made everybody else feel at home, too. It's just this subtle difference in mindset that just allowed everyone to relax. Solna actually writes this. She says, Lost, these people I talked to helped me understand was mostly a state of mind. I've seen this. I've noticed this a lot as a pastor that in, in terms of the soul and the wilderness, often two people can be undergoing the exact same life experience, and it's really challenging. Like, they're in the wilderness, and one person can feel just completely lost, and the other can be, like, tracking and optimistic and even hopeful um, because lost is a state of mind and usually the difference between those two things is it's almost always a rich body of experience personally with getting lost and because of that a set of competencies that have been acquired through spending time in, in the wilderness If being lost is when the world suddenly gets larger than your knowledge of it, then there's a sense in which I think getting lost in this this context is um, a spiritual necessity. We'll never reach anything like spiritual maturity unless we learn how to navigate the wilderness and to do so faithfully. Stanley Hauerwas says it this way. He says, the wilderness is the place reserved for learning how to go on when you don't know where you are. Now, I'm not sure that any other thing could be more important for us as Christians in the world today than how to go on when we don't know where we are. You start to realize we need to be ready for times when we're going to lose our way, and especially in a spiritual sense. We're going to need some practice, some experience, in the wilderness, in in the competencies acquired only when we trek out into terra incognita. Henry David Thoreau says in Walden um, that that never to be lost is to never really live. He was kind of stuck up about the wilderness, but uh, the point is good. It's a valid one. He, He said getting lost is essential training for how to be human. He writes this, it is a surprising and memorable as well as valuable experience to be lost in the woods at any time. Not until we are completely lost, in essence, not until we have lost the world do we begin to find ourselves and realize where we are and the infinite extent of our relations. This this is this is pretty good. Thoreau spent a lot of time all by himself out in the wilderness. And part of what he learned is that the wilderness is not just um, for learning where you are. It's for learning who you are. Who we are and who God is and how they're meant to relate. And in scripture, anytime there was like big cultural turmoil in, in the world, God seemed to lead somebody somewhere into the wilderness. When God, when God was trying to change somebody's heart and and get them to you know play a, a big role in the story of God, God would usually get them lost first. I mean, think of Noah lost on the sea for forty days. Think of Israel spending forty years in the wilderness learning to trust in God. Think of um, Elijah spending. Um, 40 days in the wilderness, learning to to discern the still, small voice of God. And then our story that we read today, Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, fasting and being tempted or tested by the devil. And each year for us, we spend 40 days in the wilderness during Lent. Lent is like this yearly chance to get a, a little bit lost, just to kind of on purpose venture into terra incognita. And because it happens so often in the story of God, I think we can know that there's a sense in which the wilderness holds for us a kind of grace. There's a grace in the wilderness that's particular to the wilderness that we can't find any other place. You may have noticed in in the reading earlier that the text, text begins Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested, he was led by the Spirit. God. He isn't being punished. He isn't strayed. He hasn't done something wrong. He's there because he was led. Because there's something he's going to need later on. I'm thinking about the garden. I'm thinking about the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he, he, there's some formation he needs in the wilderness that's going to help him keep faith in it later on. He had to get lost for a little while. Now, when a Jewish writer tells a story, and they mention 40 years, and they mention the wilderness. Every Jewish reader immediately thinks of Exodus, right? So this, sto- this story is clearly alluding um, to Moses. Luke's doing this on purpose in the 40 years in the wilderness. And if you remember this summer when we studied this, the original plan was to take people straight out of slavery in Egypt into the Promised Land. But they'd spent 400 years as slaves. Nobody even remembered what it was like to be free. They had no imagination for how to live as free people. They had trusted in Pharaoh for so long, they didn't know how to trust in God. And they get out there and immediately start whining, wanting to go back. And so God led them, instead of straight into the promised land, God led them out into the wilderness to this place of total vulnerability and, in a sense, reliance upon God. If they wanted food, They had to wait on manna the next morning. They couldn't even gather it up. They wanted water. They had to wait on Moses to strike a rock. If they needed guidance, there was this cloud and this fire. They had to wait on it to move. Forty years it took for God to get them to stop thinking like slaves and start thinking like children of God. And here's the thing. I mean, I think that we're in a very... Um, similar situation. I mean, we're not like slaves to Pharaoh, but we're not exactly free. In many ways, we're, we're slaves to the gods of our culture, individualism, consumerism, nationalism, you know? Our lives are determined for us in many ways by the role that we play within kind of a, what's become a very predatory capitalist system with these this unholy trinity of individualism, consumerism, and nationalism, and the system is beginning to break down, and that's, I think, much of why our old maps no longer function, and the story of God tells tells us that when you're in this kind of situation, often the way that God can move us toward a new imagination is to lead us into the wilderness to get us good and lost for a bit. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, he always describes this um, uh, phenomenon in terms of orientation. He says, um, uh, we're often stuck in an old orientation, you could say maps, um, but but the terrain has suddenly changed and, and we're feeling kind of lost and our old <coughs> maps, our old orientation can't help us navigate where we are. So we need a new orientation that takes into account the new aspects of our Experience. But what God knows is the only way to move people from an old orientation to a new orientation is to take us through a season of disorientation. Does this sound familiar? I'm gonna try to talk about this several times a year. This is this is a big theme in the scripture, And, and this is this disorientation, this is the role of the wilderness in the story of God and in the life of Christ. The wilderness. Can, can take us from a, a place where we think we know everything about our world, except you know how to be happy and content and hopeful, and it kind of shoves us into a place where the world is suddenly larger than our knowledge of it. Old maps that aren't working, and we're working on a whole new deal. That's, that's disorientation. And it's vulnerable, and it's scary, and it is often very painful. It's painful, it hurts in the wilderness I and mean, we almost feel like we're dying right like we're losing it and when in fact we're actually really coming to life again we're, we're being found I mean this is death to resurrection right this is being born again this is I once was lost but now I'm found this is I used to trust in myself for my future and now I trust in God this is the journey right it's the journey Jesus took and the one we have to take as well but there's no going into the wilderness Without risk and vulnerability, and, and frankly, pain. And so it takes courage, it really does, to let go of an old orientation, especially one that, one that worked for us very well for a long time. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, right? So the only thing that matters to him is food at this point. And hunger kind of symbolizes um, the pain the nagging pain in the wilderness. And the tempter said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. He questions Jesus' identity. That's the first place he goes, right? By the way, that's usually the first clue that we're in a in a wilderness season, right? We start thinking, I don't even know who I am anymore. Like I used to be the guy who knew who we're, he was and what he's supposed to do, what's expected, and I was ready to do it. And now I just feel lost, like my old game just isn't isn't working anymore, and I don't know who I am anymore. What Jesus is is tempted with here is a kind of a magical escape from the pain of that. You solve the problem, turn the bread or turn the stone to bread, and it's over. He and he's. Sort of has to choose to stay in it in the wilderness to let the wilderness do its work i think for us often this temptation will come to us in the form of something like a person to blame for our troubles right scapegoat or a chance to deny that we're lost in the first place i'm fine nothing smells that's what me and kristen always say nothing smells i don't smell anything right A way to run, to avoid or ignore the problem. A way to numb ourselves from the pain, right? Take a pill, a drink, eat this, go shopping. Or cynicism, you know, stand at a cynical distance and act like we don't care even though we do. A means of control over our situation, over function, power up. Or maybe perfectionism. I'll just perform perfectly, I'll maintain the illusion that everything's okay. These are just ways to, ex- to escape the pain of the wilderness. And usually there's one that's kind of your thing. Did one of them make you squirm? I, actually, what happens is you can usually spot your spouses first and then your own. That's how, that's how I roll, right? And there's a problem, right? If I, if I use these ways of trying to escape the wilderness, or the pain of it, this will, this will leave me trapped in the disorientation, trapped in the old orientation. And, and if we do this, one of two things is gonna happen. One is we'll, we'll try to avoid the pain of the wilderness in sort of a conscious sense, sort of stuffing it down inside. They call this repression. But it will come out in other ways, displaced anger, Um, Projection, anxiety, these cycles of relational problems and and pain, you know, feelings of, I don't know, like recycling emotions over and over. And, And what this ends up doing is kind of detaching us from reality. We have to live in a pretend world, a fantasy world that just increasingly becomes kind of shallow and superficial that's one. Or two, we can bring the pain of the wilderness out in the open and then begin to inflict it on other people. Just pass it on, right, to our children, our family, our friends, and ruin relationships in the process. I mean, these are not two very appealing options, am I right? But there is a third way that we see in the story of Christ here. Instead of escaping the wilderness, we, um, we learn to explore it and allow it to reveal the hidden depths of our own identity and of God's. Jesus answers the temptation saying man doesn't live by bread alone. It's really interesting, it's from it's a quote from Deuteronomy 8:3 and it's a section in which in Deuteronomy they're retelling the Exodus. Like so it's reinforcing that again. He sort of returns to his roots in the story of God, and his own tradition. He's using that old narrative to help him navigate this new terrain. This is part of why we try to make a special emphasis on Scripture during Lent and try to, to read some kind of passage every single day during Lent. Next, the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, I'll give you power over all of these. Just bow down to me. I'll give you the power over the whole world, which is weird because there's a sense in which this is Jesus' ultimate mission. He means to rule the world as the world's true Lord. But here the temptation is to become the Lord of Lords, in a sense, without taking up his cross. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.13 to him, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Essentially, in, in doing that, what he says is, even just to gain power and exercise power, without cruciformity, without self-sacrificial love, to do that is to risk serving some rival god. Rival gods are tough. They're they're usually our our blind spot, right? They're the water we swim in. If If you want to know what your rival god is, it's whatever you obsessively attend to. That's your rival god, right? If you obsessively attend to a mirror, um, your own reflection, then your rival god is probably your own image. I do not have this problem, for obvious reasons. Um, if you obsessively attend to the news, right, or, or you know, online, the that, that whole ecosystem, then your god is, I don't know, something like relevancy or knowledge. If you obsessively attend to your phone, then that's your god, or whatever it's providing you, distraction, numbing, entertainment. Whatever you obsessively attend to, this kind of points you to your rival God. And so that's what you fast from in the wilderness. Like in Lent, that's what we try to do. Whatever we obsessively attend to, we try to design some kind of Lenten fast that'll get at that thing. Finally, the tempter took him to Jerusalem in the highest point of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, jump off this wall and God will save you. Again, he questions his identity. And he's kind of exploiting the natural human, like I don't know, identity crisis or tendency toward insecurity. He shared that with us, especially in the wilderness. And he's tempting Jesus to like perform a spectacular feat so everyone will will applaud him, right? Just kind of prove to himself and to others that he really is the Son of God. And so he quotes Deuteronomy. 6.16, don't put your God to the test. Essentially, he he says, the wilderness is not where we test God to see if God is, like, really powerful and can make our lives work out perfectly and and support the image that we have of ourselves and convince everybody else that's, that's real. The wilderness isn't for testing God. It's for testing us. Not in, like, Test and if you fail, like God's gonna you know, send you to hell. It's a test to see how you're, how you're doing where, where you are. If you're developing the courage to keep faith in it when, when you don't know where you are, it's, it's power loss. How can you keep going when you don't know where you are? Stay in it, the struggle of the wilderness, of, of the disorientation. And staying in it and keep faithing, we, we allow it to start kind of um, kill, to kill off the things that are killing us. That's the best way I know to say it. The wilderness starts to kill off all the stuff that's killing us that we're holding on to and can't let go. And it, in the process, we become more alive. We figure out what it means to be human and what it means to be me, to be you wilderness can actually teach us to be confident in who we are it's it's weird but if you run into people who've been through like serious pain they they're not usually proving themselves anymore they sort of know it's it's the throw thing when you, when you're when you've lost your safe little world you find yourself and you know who you are you don't really fall for lies about your identity and a big part of what's going on in this story that I hope you catch is that God has shown up in the world, in, in Christ. He didn't stay above the fray, like looking down, you know, passing judgment. God joins us in, in the wilderness. And because we've, we see this, because it's part of our story, what, what we say is, in a sense, Christ joins us in the wilderness and sort of becomes our map, our way to navigate. A way to keep faith in it, even when we just feel lost. In the wilderness, we position ourselves in a place where God can sort of get to us and change and grow us. But it, it involves getting, feeling, being lost. And always a bit of pain. But only the lost get found, you know? an interesting word, lost. The English word lost actually comes from an old Norse word, los, which referred to um, the disbanding of an army. Isn't that wild? That's where it comes from. It, it kind of evokes the, an image of soldiers falling out of formation and heading home after a, a battle or a campaign, just sort of declaring, as they disperse, declaring a truce with the whole wide world. That's where los lost comes from. I like that. There's this, there's this sense in which um, getting lost is the only path to peace. The wilderness sort of teaches us to accept our limitations and, and to learn how to be confident in who we are in Christ. And then to keep faith in it. Because Christ has joined us in, in the wilderness. And God is present with us. We know this, even when it feels like we're all alone. And if we can do this, we can maybe begin to live without fear. It doesn't fix everything, right? It doesn't fix like the fact that we our maps aren't working and we still feel like the world is larger than our sense of it. But it, what it does is it begins to quiet down the anxiety and the fear. And I think Christians are meant to be the one group of people who have spent enough time in the wilderness to know that we can can trust in God, that God is with us, even when it doesn't feel like it, and who can even begin to recognize God's presence. And so we don't have to turn to the list to escape. We don't have to like overfunction and make ourselves feel safe because we know we are safe. And... Then all of a sudden, like every little thing that goes wrong doesn't feel so much like a threat. It feels like like that's where everyone else is. And I think maybe we should be different. But to get there, we need the wilderness. That's the path to peace. And this is our journey during the season of Lent. We join Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. We just get a little bit lost on purpose in order to gain a new orientation and a deeper sense of who we are and what it means to be human. Amen? Let's pray. God, I think about what a different story the gospel would be without Jesus in the wilderness. And I'm so glad this is part of the story. That when your spirit became, you know, embodied in a human being, it wasn't a general or a dictator. It was a courageous, faithful carpenter who joined us in terra incognita. And I pray for Redemption Church, all of us here in this room and listening online, and a world in which it just feels like our maps are no good, things aren't where we felt like they were not so long ago. And I pray that we would be brave people to keep on in it and to just know that you are with us. That even when we don't feel like it, you're there. And even when we're just messing things up, that you still love us completely and call us your children. And we can trust that that's who we are. And I know there are tempters who try to define us. And we know who they are, and I pray that we would reject them. And pray for this Lenten season, God, that you would lead us through the wilderness and out the other side. Amen. Would you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion now. The way we do this at Redemption is um, the ushers come and just release us row by row. You come forward, be offered the bread and, and the cup, and um, the, they'll say to you, you can grab it, and they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can kind of respond however you like, say amen, or say I'll remember, or however you wish. And the reason that we do this is because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and broke it. And he shared it with his, his friends, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. <coughs> and then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and, again, shared it with all his friends after he blessed it. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. It means a new deal in my blood meant life, a new deal in my life. And he said, whenever you gather, like, eat my body, drink my blood, and then, which they were like what he he meant take my life into your life and be made out of the stuff i'm made out of this is what you're meant to do he said every time you gather do this and be reminded of who you are and so this is why we receive communion and we call we invite anybody who wants that to be their story to join us at the table Um, and so i invite you to join me as we bless it um, before we partake Lord, we ask you to bless this table, this, this um, cup and this bread. May it be to us a uh, means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we re- receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Will you come and live inside us? Make us new from the inside out. Teach us who we are. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?